0: Grace Point. It is so great to see you today, especially those of you joining us for the first time, wherever in the world you're watching and whenever you're watching, we're just thrilled you're here. Today we're going to continue our series on reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith. And this this sermon, this teaching, this message, whatever you want to call it, this talk is a two-parter. We'll begin it today and it'll carry over into next week. So today we're going to start talking about judgment and next week we're going to talk about justice. Uh, And uh, I I think that these two talks will sort of bridge and really address both of them. So I recently happened upon some interesting data, and it was a poll from the Religion News Service from March of 2019. And it was a poll essentially listing uh, different religious groups and the percentage of Americans that identified with those religious groups. And and there were a few that were really interesting. First, evangelicals came in at 22.5%. That's the number three highest religious group or affiliation. Um, it feels like there are more of them than that, but that's that's the number. Uh, Catholics came in at 23%, so just slightly ahead of evangelicals, and they were the second largest group. The largest group on the survey of, of Americans and their religious preference was none. Nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. Nuns. People who answered that question with, I, I don't have a religious affiliation. I have no religious connection. When you begin to dig through that data, because I found it really interesting, What you begin to discover is that one of the major reasons people have switched from one of those religious boxes to to maybe the no religious box is when they leave church, one of the biggest sort of exit polls says that Christians are hypocritical and judgmental. I mean, we've all heard this before, right? Christians tend to be hypocritical and judgmental. Now, if you're like me, you sort of have this initial impulse to stop and and get a little defensive and say, no, 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 not all Christians are hypocritical and judgmental. But here's the thing. People who say Christians are hypocritical and judgmental aren't wrong, right? I mean, they're not. Lots and lots of Christians are hypocritical and judgmental. But of course, it's not all Christians. Not all Christians are that way. Obviously not. But for many people, the only Christians they may have met, bumped up against, come in contact with, seen on social media maybe they are hypocritical and judgmental. So if we want to change the perception, then we have to grapple with where, if, or how the idea of judgment fits into a progressive Christian lens. Maybe the best place to start is with some familiar words from Jesus. This section is part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of Jesus teaching where he's he's, he's riffing on the Torah. He's riffing on the Jewish law. And what he does here is not abolish the law but he shows what it means to fulfill it. And by fulfill it, it doesn't mean Jesus checked all the boxes so nobody else has to. But what Jesus is saying is, this is what's written. And if we freeze that in time, then it actually gets in the way of us living it out. For example, Jesus riffs on this. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Now, if you go back in time to when eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth originated, it was in a time where it was seeking to limit the amount of violence. Because if somebody were to cut off your finger or kill your goat or something like that, then, then you could come back and just kill them to get revenge, right? And eye for eye says, no, you could only do what has been done to you. It was designed to limit violence. But you can see if you freeze there, eventually it becomes an excuse for violence. Well, look what they did to me. And so Jesus says, actually, the fulfilling intent of that text is not to keep doing to them what they've done to you. The the fulfillment of that is to learn to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, right? So that's the sort of the the rabbi Jesus, teacher Jesus sort of riffing on, look where this could go. And he gets into, uh, in Matthew 7, a, a bit on judgment. And here's what he says. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt out to you. Why do you see the splinter that is in your brother or sister's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in yours? You deceive yourself. First, take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother or sister's eye. Don't give holy things to dogs and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will stomp on the pearls and turn around and attack you. Now, this seems like a weird story. So Jesus goes from judging to carpentry to agriculture, right, to to animals. And so I want to walk through this text and maybe just sort of tease out what Jesus maybe is saying about judgment. But then also, really importantly, what I don't think Jesus is saying, what he's not saying about judgment. Let's Let's look at the first phrase. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. You'll receive the same judgment you give. Whatever you deal out will be dealt back to you. It's pretty blunt. We aren't to judge. And if we do, we'll in turn receive judgment. Now, I don't think this is talking about divine judgment where we do something wrong. God's like, well, now you're going to get it. But just sort of this idea that when we behave and treat people in a certain way, we often end up getting that same treatment back. I think that's what he's getting at. Now, the word judge here is a form of the Greek word krino. And it means to separate, put asunder. I really think we should bring the word asunder back. That just has a ring to it. Put asunder, to pick out, select, choose, to approve, esteem, to prefer, to be of opinion, to deem, to think, to determine, resolve, decree, or to judge Right between right and wrong. Now, here's what I don't think Jesus is saying. I want to get this out of the way first. I don't think Jesus is saying that we shouldn't use discernment or that we should never make decisions. If you take judgment out of the Bible, you end up with a God who is uncaring and lacking in compassion. I think we can actually sum up the meaning of the Bible in two statements, and I'll give you one of them now, and we got a series coming up in the fall where I'll give you the other one. I'd like to build that suspense. I think we can sum up the Bible. One of the statements that sums up the Bible is that God hears the cry of the oppressed and wills their liberation. Right, that's, found, that's a foundational story in the Hebrew Scriptures, the story of Exodus. When the ancient gods typically were on the side of those in power and those who are the oppressors, this this Hebrew religion emerged around a God who is not on the side of the powerful, but a God who is found among the oppressed, a God who hears the cry of the oppressed, and a God who acts definitively in history to liberate them. So I actually think we want God to judge. We want God to stand with Hebrew slaves in Egypt. We want God to stand with victims of the Holocaust. We want a God who stands with displaced refugees fleeing to safety. We want a God who believes that black lives matter and that embraces all who have been sent away by religious institutions that have claimed to act in her name. We want God to stand with every oppressed, forgotten, marginalized, and mistreated person in all of human history. And when we read these words, Psalm 43.1, it it opens with a request, almost a demand of the divine. Establish justice for me, God. Argue my case against ungodly people. Rescue me from the dishonest and unjust. It's this prayer that emerges from a person who is in a situation where they are being unjustly treated, and their response is to ask, plead, almost demand justice of God. And for God to give them justice, God's going to have to make a choice. Right? Do I side with the oppressor or do I side with the oppressed? Now, I I think that God wants to do something else with the oppressor, and we're going to get to that next week, so, so hold on to that. Those who have been oppressed and experienced injustice cry out for justice, and that means that judgment is needed. God sides with the oppressed. In this case, the only people who have a problem with judgment in this sense are those who have chosen the wrong side of history. So I want to be clear that this kind of judgment needs to stick. We need it. Because it's how we begin to engage and rectify the injustices of the world. And next week, we're going to look at this understanding of judgment and how it relates to justice. Because I, I think that in the progressive movement, we have a serious issue when it comes to justice. And so we'll talk about that next week. We'll pick that thread back up. When we throw judgment around, like in this sense, that Christians are too judgmental. I don't think people mean Christians are really in to the God of justice who is working for the poor and the oppressed. I think what they're saying is, Judgmental. I think when we say judgment, we tend to mean judgmental, which isn't siding with those who have experienced injustice. It's the judgmental kind of judgment is about shame, con- condemnation, and control. I love these words from Frederick Delbruner. Don't judge is open to several interpretations. It certainly does not mean don't discern or do not think. For the next sum immediately commands disciples to distinguish dogs from holy things and pigs from pearls. And the warning at the end of the chapter tells us we must discern false from true prophets by their fruit. All discernment involves the formation of judgments. We are asked to surrender the judgment of condemnation. We are not to make final judgments on anyone, nor to speak assuredly of people's real character, nor to pretend we know God's verdict on other people's lives. I think he's getting at something here. I don't think Jesus is saying we should never make decisions about what's right and wrong, what's just and unjust. Especially in the context of human suffering, it is never acceptable to look at suffering and try to say there are good people on both sides, like the oppressor and the oppressed. They're both good people, or there's something going on there that needs rectifying. But in this sense, Jesus is talking about, it seems to me that judgment is about controlling people, right? Because after all, we love them and have a wonderful plan for their life, or we think we do. When we're talking about judging, we're talking about attempting to control someone through correcting through criticizing, through shaming, through ignoring, through ostracizing, because ultimately life is middle school, right? Anybody ever have that experience in middle school, high school? First day you walk in, you don't really have a, a group of friends yet, and so you're just kind of wondering where you sit, or maybe you and your friends had a falling out, and now you're sitting at the lunch table alone. Like that that seems like, oh, when middle school's over, that's over. But that ends up sometimes being real life. And I think ultimately we end up trying to control people through fear. We end up trying to control them. Through fear, correcting, criticizing, shaming, ignoring, ostracizing, and ultimately the the, sort of the big weapon is fear. And I think this is what Jesus means when he says, don't give holy things to dogs and don't throw your pearls in front of pigs. They will stomp the pearls, turn and attack you. He is not using dogs or pit, the pit dog or pig image to demean or dehumanize in this case. I do think there is a case in um, the Gospels where Jesus actually does use the, the image of a dog, and he is using it to demean, and he actually has a transformative experience where he learns something new and changes his mind. Uh, and we'll talk about that maybe at some point. But he's not using it in this case to demean. It's an observation that dogs and pigs do not know what to do with pearls. So it actually has the opposite effect. If you toss some pearls in front of a pig, they're not going to know these are valuable pearls. They're going to expect something to eat. And when they're disappointed, they're going to look for food somewhere. I think this is the image Jesus is getting at. And I think what he's ultimately trying to say is when we try to force things, even good things, holy things, pearls, those are good things. When we try to force good things onto other people that they just aren't ready for, this is what happens. It has the opposite effect. It's a lesson I'm continuing to learn on social media. Sometimes even from a place I think of good intention, I end up getting into a mess and I end up almost having to pull myself back from using shame to attempt to control other people's opinions. So I think judgment works in two ways. It works using the negative, right? Where we judge, we condemn, we shame, we, uh, we isolate, we ostracize, we, we pump fear at. So we, judgment can work negatively, but we can also try to judge by using the good. By, by offering good things to people, things that maybe in a year, two years, whatever, they'll be ready for, but right now it actually is something that they just can't appreciate. And here's, here's the thing. I don't think this means, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't engage people and invite them to see things from a different perspective. It doesn't mean we don't stand up when people are being marginalized and mistreated. We absolutely do. We absolutely must. The pursuit of justice is deeply embedded in the Christ path. What it does mean, I think, is that transformation will never really happen when the driving force is shame, fear, or control. When What we're ultimately trying to do is shame people into our perspective or shame people into making the decision we want, shaming them to go to the school we want them to go to, shaming them to go into the job we want to, shaming them to root for whoever we want them to root for. When we use shame and fear as the primary motivator, it doesn't ultimately create transformation. It can create a kind of acquiescence. It can create a kind of, well, I'll just do this to get them off my back. But it doesn't actually it doesn't actually lead to transformation. It's one thing to invite, to teach, to critique, and call to repentance. I think we should do all of those things. Invite, teach, critique, call to repentance. Call something out when it needs to be called out. It is another thing to try to subvert the transformation process by just getting people to do what we want externally at least, right? Like just look like you're doing what we want while disregarding the internal, while disregarding what's going on in the heart. I remember this so vividly growing up, being in churches and being in the congregation, and at the end of the sermon, which was often fiery and um, calling for judgment on us, and every head would be bowed and every eye would be closed, and they would start singing a hymn or uh, uh, Just As I Am or Amazing Grace or when we really went liberal, Shout to the Lord or something like that. And we'd be standing there and they would start to ask questions. Every head bowed and every eyes closed. If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Where would you spend eternity? And I can remember the specific night when I uh, sort of broke and went down front was because one of, the, one of the people who were leading the revival told this story about someone dying prematurely, a young person. And they said, there's a good chance that somebody in this room tonight will not make it home alive. And I thought, there's not that many people in here. The odds are not ever in my favor. I got to do something here, right? And the reality is that what happened that night wasn't transformation. I wasn't committing myself to a way of life. I wasn't committing to love my neighbor and love my enemy and be generous and compassionate and work for justice. I was signing up for an afterlife plan. And, and that sign up for an afterlife life plan ended up being sort of the main thing we were, we, the main product we offered to the world Is we can get you into a, a really sweet situation in the afterlife. And yet we, we ended up trying to sort of hot Jesus like Jesus was a bad used car. Like don't look under the hood, just trust, right? Don't ask any questions, just believe. And if you believe and you pray this prayer and you get baptized and you sign this document, you're in for good. I can remember being um, a youth and volunteering at BBS. And every Thursday night, there'd be this moment where somebody would come around and literally scare the hell out of the children. And of course, every, when you ask the question, who wants to go to heaven? Every hand goes up, and every kid gets baptized, and the numbers are ticking up. And it looks like we're really knocking it out of the park. And the reality is we're just using fear, and we're just using shame. And it ultimately doesn't lead to transformation. In this context, for a lot of people, it led to trauma. It led to a lot of religious trauma. It led to a lot of fear, a lot of sleepless nights. And so when we talk about judgment, I think we have to be clear that we're not talking about using shame or fear to control people because that's not how we transform. We cannot be judged or controlled into things for them to be real and transformative. I don't know about you, but did you ever get into something because it was fashionable that you found it really uncomfortable And and yet you would do it anyway, but just because everybody else was doing it, but deep down you thought, I don't know why we're doing this. And I bet everybody else wearing the uncomfortable thing, doing the uncomfortable, I bet they were thinking it too, right? We have this sense to just want to appear. And the reality is that's not where transformation happens in the appearance. It doesn't happen when we check all the boxes. Transformation is, is a journey of the heart. I think in this text, when Jesus talks about do not judge, I think he is calling us to entrust other people to God. After all, he reminds us we have plenty to work on for ourselves. When he says, why do you see the splinter that's in your brother or sister's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in your eye? You deceive yourself. First take the log out of your eye. Then you'll see clearly take the splinter out of your brother's or sister's eye. We spent a lot of uh, days outside at our house um, this spring and summer, and we have a, a wooden back deck. And sometimes the kids will get up there and they'll run around And when they do that, they run them barefoot, and they end up with splinters in their feet. And we have this one particular um, kiddo who gets splinters, hates them, and yet when we try to extract the splinter from her foot, she loses it. And you can probably hear her scream all over the neighborhood. right? So Jesus says, sometimes it's hard to find a splinter. They're still buried in there, you can't even see it. And Jesus says, how can you go around and try to get a little speck out of your neighbor's eye, when you have a beam sticking out of yours. There's actually, I think, intended to carry a comedic sort of sense. It's sort of a visual reminder that when we engage in this kind of judgmentalism where we're using fear and shame to control people, it's this reminder that this kind of judgmentalism actually keeps people from coming close to us. When you've got a beam sticking out of your eye, people can only get so close. And you can only get so close to them. We push people away by trying to make them what we want them to be. Jesus' solution actually isn't, that's never your job. You should never try to get a splinter out of someone else's eye. Instead, Jesus' point is, deal with your own issues, take the beam out of your eye, and then maybe you'll be compassionate enough to help others take a speck out of theirs. See, the problem with judgmentalism, it has zero compassion because it ignores everything else that's going on When when I'm judgmental, I'm ignoring all of my issues, all of my struggles, all the things I could work on, all the areas I could improve. When I'm being judgmental, I am completely honed and zoned in on everybody else while ignoring myself. I have a beam coming out of my eye and I'm going around pointing at specks in other people's eyes. It's a barrier. But Jesus says, there's a moment when you have done the hard work of getting the log out of your eye that maybe you'll develop some empathy. And maybe you'll develop some compassion. I think what judgmentalism ends up being is is sort of religious fervor without the compassion. I think Jesus would say, and actually does say in the Gospel of Luke, be compassionate because God is compassionate. You can have all the religious fervor. You can have all the doctrinal purity. You can have all the orthodoxy in the world. And if it is not embraced with compassion and if it is not covered in love, then it ceases to be meaningful or valuable or helpful. Maybe if we go through the beam removal process ourselves, it will create some empathy for the specs that other people are carrying around. Jesus' solution to our judgmental tendency is for us to trust and trust others to God. And I think this is why we struggle with it. And this is where we're gonna pick it up next week. I think we struggle with turn, turning people over to God and essentially saying, God, it's not my job to, to make the final say on them. It's your job. I think the reason we're worried about that is because we're concerned that God won't act the way we hope. <laughs> we're concerned that God may let them off easy. Um, and so we're going to kick and look at that next week. But as, as we sort of wrap this up today, I want to leave you with a couple questions. Can, can I entrust other people to God? Is that a thing I can do? Is that a thing I can begin to try to do? That when I begin to look at someone else's life in a judgmental way, that I can begin to just maybe have a moment where I'm like, that is not... That is above my pay grade. That is not in my job description. My job isn't to judge other people. I'm working on a beam removal from my own eye. right? Can we entrust others to God? And it actually probably begins with this question. Can I entrust myself to God? Can I entrust myself to God? Can I entrust that with all of my faults and all of the things that I have going on, that God, when God thinks about me, sees me, however that works, I think that, that's sort of metaphorical language, obviously, but... It, Does God love me? Does God value me? Am I beloved? Am I made in the image of the divine? Yes, each and every one of us are made in God's image. Each and every one of us are beloved. Each and every one of us is a child of God. And when I can begin to entrust God with me and making sure that the people who've wronged me over here, making sure that this thing that happened over here, when I can begin to say, everything is not under the purview of my control, when I can can begin to just rest in my identity as beloved and I can begin to do the own work, the interior work, the journey of beam removal in my own eye, that's when I can really begin to be compassionate and empathetic and begin to join in the work of healing the world. That's our job, Grace Point. That's our work. Not to be judgmental, but to be people who are entrusting ourselves and entrusting others even our enemies, entrusting them to a God who has called each and every one of us beloved. Grace Point, would you join me in welcoming Kashif Graham? Kashif is part of our Grace Point community, and he's also a
1: typewriter poet, and he's going to share some of his poetry with us as we wrap up our gathering today. Hi, everyone. My name is Kashif Graham. You can find me on Instagram at kagwrites. I'm a typewriter poet, and I'm going to share a few of my poems of protest with you. I do not want to return to normal. And now, without further interruption, back to our regularly scheduled oppression, I lay awake each quarantine night, begging the amber streetlights for a new America with liberty and justness for every living thing. Can't we all just get along? Yes, but first the roots, pull them up. The principalities, call them down by name, Let us stomp our feet together. In the name of the God of equity, stomp our feet together. Bring this whole house tumbling down. Then we may walk together. Isaiah 58, five through six from the anti-racist Bible. Is that it? Just one day of pushing against white supremacy, of rushing towards your black neighbors with wet words in your hands, I am sorry, I am sorry, now I can see. This is the work the universe wants. Go get your well-worn traveling shoes, your big tent, good food, water. It's a long way. Finally, I'd like to offer you a queer prayer. Our mother, who art in the universe, slaylicious is your name. Thy queendom come, thy will be done in the universe as it is in our minds. Give us this day our daily sparkle and forgive us our unlovingness as we forgive those who cannot accept our rainbows. For yours is the queendom, the fierceness and the slayage.
0: Amen. grace Point, thank you so much again for being here with us today. Um, we're so thrilled to be able to share this time with you. Uh, just a reminder, next week, we're gonna follow up this week's teaching with another teaching that will touch a little bit more on justice in the sense that we, we began with today, which is God acting on behalf of the oppressed and poor and willing their liberation. And we're going to ask what that has to do with justice. And when the Bible talks about justice, what kind of justice is it talking about? And, and how might that understanding of justice transform the way we interact with each other and interact with the world around us? Thanks so much for being here. Hope you have a good week, Grace Point. We love you. Grace
1: and peace be with you.